So uh, while we have one more panelist uh, waiting to join us, let me just start by welcoming everybody here to, uh, to the New York Lounge. We really appreciate your attending today. Um, before I get to uh, just talk a tiny bit about the panel and then they will speak for themselves, I just want to thank everyone and um, thank our sponsors uh, of the New York Lounge. Uh, we've got uh, Entertainment Partners, a great sponsor, and uh, most of uh, our sponsors are around, so if you have any questions for them, go sit, Luca. Um, Entertainment Partners, Payroll, Central Casting, Movie Magic, uh, they're a great resource. We've got FWRV Law Firm, Entertainment Law Firm. JVC is here with a great 4K camera. You should go take a look over here. Uh, Transit Wireless, who did all the Wi-Fi for the subways. Come on in. Come on. Don't leave. I'm really good at this. I could track people like the wrong end of a magnet. So um, uh, Transit Wireless did all the New York subway Wi-Fi, and they have uh, provided Wi-Fi for us here as well. Cineverse, uh, camera rental, equipment rental company. Uh, Moses & Shriver, who is um, uh, accounting company and business consultants. Um, and uh, the New York Production Alliance, who... Uh, hosts The Lounge. Um, my name is Mike Jackman. I'm the chairman of the Production Alliance. And of course, Light Iron, who is running today's panel. So um, let me uh, turn this over to our friends here at Light Iron. Great. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. Um, thanks for coming out. Thanks for spending a Saturday afternoon uh, with us here. Uh, we are, uh, my name is Paul Geffrey, I'm the VP of uh, post-production and a co-founder of Lightiron. This is Megan Marquis, she's our executive producer in our New York office, hence the New York Lounge. Uh, thank you so much for hosting New York Lounge, thanks for having us in. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you guys for being here. Um, Megan is going to tell you a little bit about Lightiron. I'm going to tell you. So in case you do not know, uh, Lightiron, which... Uh, we have offices in LA and New York. We are a post-production company that specializes in mobile dailies and DI. Uh, we have facilities on both coasts, so we work with both studios and indies alike. Some people know us for our cutting-edge workflows. We also have our iPad dailies app, Live Play 3. Um, and we also did the first feature-length 6K digital intermediate for Gone Girl. Others know us for our creative collaborations on projects like Short Term 12, Flight, Ender's Game, and the Golden Globe winning Transparent. This year we're very proud to have collaborated with eight projects here at Sundance, and uh, some of those talented filmmakers are here joining us today. So um, without further ado, uh, we are going to introduce our panelists. Yeah. Um. Yeah, they, they handed me this one, so I guess we're going to... I'll pass this one um, First and foremost, we're very, very honored and lucky to have um, not only some great Sun Sundance alumni, but also current filmmakers, uh, people who have just been involved in the industry for a very long time at a very high level. Um, to our far right, this is Rick DeLisle. He is, uh, works for Panavision. Uh, he's a Chicago... I'm just going to read these because otherwise <laughs> it could go off the rails real fast. <laughs> Um, Rick is a Chicago native who studied film at the University of Illinois. He worked at Northwestern's radio, television, and film department and left the cold behind uh, to move to Los Angeles. After a brief career as a camera assistant and cinematographer, Rick joined the team at Panavision, where he has been helping filmmakers find the right camera package uh, for nearly 10 years. Uh, so, uh, very well-experienced uh, gentleman on our far right. Uh, next to him is Todd Labarowski. Uh, 
Todd's a good friend of mine and also the founder of DreamBridge Films. Uh, he founded that in 2008 to develop, produce, and finance innovative stories and premier talent. And since then, he's premiered several films here at Sundance um, over the years, uh, including The Kids Are All Right in 2010, Goats in 2012. And uh, in addition to that, he has produced dozens of other award-winning films uh, that have premiered at Toronto, South by Southwest, Venice, and the L.A. Film Festival. Uh, Todd's a great resource and a, a great guy. Uh, to, uh, to his left, this is Luca Borghese, another very talented producer and uh, post-supervisor. Uh, we work very closely with Luca in New York. Uh, he's been working in feature film uh, production, post-production and distribution since the year 2000. In the year 2000. I had to do it. Um, he most recently produced uh, Bob Polcini and Sherry Springer Berman's 10,000 Saints, uh, which premiered last night. Uh, to, uh, to great reviews. So hats off, Luca. Congratulations on that. Um, and some of his most recent post credits and co producer credits include Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, which is in production or in post right now, Triple Nine, Mr. Holmes, Time Out of Mind, and Men, Women, and Children. And lastly, but certainly not least, uh, Kyle Patrick Alvarez uh, is the uh, director of the Stanford Prison Experiment, um, another uh, film premiering here at Sundance uh, this go around. Uh, we are very fortunate to work with Kyle, we've done a couple movies with him now. Um, he's a Los Angeles-based director, writer, and producer, and editor. Um, the Stanford Prison Experiment marks his third film as a director. His second film, COG, was the first movie based on the work of David Sedaris, which premiered uh, here at Sundance uh, in 2013. And in 2010, he won the Someone to Watch Award at the uh, Independent Spirit Awards for his debut, uh, Easier with Practice. So as you can tell, a great wealth of information here, and we will try to mine as much as we can out of them in the time we have. Uh, hopefully, uh, due to the nice intimate setting that we have, we can uh, incorporate lots of comments and questions from the audience afterwards. So. Awesome. All right. So uh, good, fast, cheap. Uh, pick one. That's kind of our topic today. So the idea is that um, we're going to discuss on the panel how to achieve all three without sacrificing anything, especially your sanity. So from production to post, we want this discussion to really help leverage creative workflows, um, especially through technology being used, um, so that you can kind of make your indie film look like a million bucks. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Now we're going to kind of assume we've kind of gone into you know the brutal part of financing and have moved into pre-production. Um, and ignore, ignore the part, make sure you've gotten the green light and ready to go. So my first question, Todd, we're going to start with you. As a producer, when do you find you start thinking about post-production and the project, uh, what it's going to involve technically? Um, does it involve the cinematographer mostly? Do you consider uh, post-production at the beginning, how that's going to factor in? Or do you find that that conversation happens a lot later down the road? Hey, thanks for coming out, everybody. Um, well, I think, I think right out the gate from the script is really when I start to think about post-production, honestly, um, because as I'm going through the script, you know, after I've familiarized myself with it, um, you start to think tonally about what it's going to look like, um, and that's going to depend on what medium you're going to use um, as far as, you know, what cameras 
Um, I come from a production background, so I tend to think uh, a lot like a, a kind of like a DP, because um, I work with so many DPs. Um, and I immediately start to think about, um, as I'm reading, you know, what the budget's going to be, and that's going to depend on what the post is going to look like and what kind of deals we're going to start to forge going forward. Uh, I, I think that the director and the DP is very much like a marriage um, in the sense, or a dance partner. Um, when I think about it out the gate, you know, it's kind of like, so you think you can dance if you've got somebody who is a fantastic dancer and the partner isn't so great. You know, you know what you're going to get. You're not going to win, win the uh, event. Um, so in, in that regards, uh, the DP is definitely a huge factor in balancing the equation. Um, so immediately after going out the gate, you know, we start to think about this post-production process. And I, I like to shoot on the airy uh, because it's, it's very diverse. Um, the the post-workflow is very quick and efficient. Um, you can dump right down onto the drive. Um, and I find that that's a, a great medium, or the Alexa specifically, um, because, you know, in low light situations, you can use that camera, you can use it on wide cinematic uh, views too, and, and you can just dump right down onto the drive. Um, so, so yeah, I think about it right out the gate. Um, and in and, and the financing aspect of it too, I find that I think about that really early too. Um, and, and already start to reach out to the post facility and, and find the DP or a director that already is established with the post facility. We tend to use you guys because you work with so many great people. Um, and a lot of times we'll start to talk about bringing in uh, some type of deal based on the budget. And, um, you know, we, we work right out the gate with you guys. So, anyways, that's my thoughts. Thanks. No, thank, I mean, that, that's exactly kind of what perfect kickoff. Um, you know, you, you said you start thinking about it right away at the script stage. Kyle, would you sort of agree with that too in terms of creatively, um, does like the technology and like all of that stuff even enter into your mind or are you just like focused on getting the words on the page and, and really crafting the script? I think, I mean, you know, you get the, you get this a very sensitive microphone. Um, you get the, you know, I mean, I think when I'm writing, you write and you get that, and you get that done with, and then, and then, okay, well, if you're starting when the movie starts to kind of become a reality. Um, this film I wasn't a producer on, but I've directed and edited and written and produced my previous two films. This one I didn't write, I just directed and edited. And so it's always a part of it for me because it's, because uh, to me, I try to think of post-production as happening at the same time, you know, as much as possible. Obviously some things need to happen after editing, but for a big part, nice. Um, <laughs> these are my guys. Uh, they. Um, <laughs> For, uh, for, you know, because a big part of it is, is what the workflow needs to be decided early on. That for me, that's going to determine so much of what's going to happen. You don't, especially if you're shooting digitally, because you're not, I can make decisions on set. I can be working on set with everything. And as an editor, I mean, I write and direct thinking as the editor of the film, too. So it's, it's, it, they, I try to blend them together as much as possible because I feel like, you know, the, the old saying used to be, you know, you write the movie three times. You write it on the page, you write it on set, and you write it in the editing room. And, and I think the nicest feeling in the world would be is the, the scenes, the times I've been happiest on my film have been when those overlap the most. You know, so there's like on, on not on Stanford, but on COG, there was a, a scene that wasn't working when we were shooting it. Um, we broke early for lunch. I rewrote it. 
then we shot it and then I cut it because we changed it so much I went and then you know cut it on the on the break we took right after that and so it was literally the writing and the in the production and in the post the at least the initial edit of the scene happened all within minutes of each other and so that was and it was a scene I turned out to be really happy with. And you don't always have the time for that, but the more you start to bring in the editing process into, and it's harder for me since I am my own editor, you know, I don't have an editor who can be working in tandem, but the more those overlap, or for instance, on Stanford, we shot half the film on a soundstage. We were in the same set the whole time. So I was able to put together some stuff on lunch breaks and say, hey, you know what, that, I didn't think I was gonna need the insert of that cigarette being lit, but actually it would really help that scene be 30 seconds shorter or something, you know what I mean? Something like that, so then we could go back and still grab that. And so having those and overlapping those, I think you just, you, you spare yourself from more of those moments afterwards when you're in editing room and being like, why didn't we get that? Why didn't we do this? Also then, speaking as a producer, and the last thing I'll say about it is that um, it's saving money. You know, it's sort of determining how you can save money. Like, uh, you know, people get really confused, and this isn't talking so much about the DI process, but in the editing process, a lot of people spend a lot of money on facilities and machines and software, and we spent $1,500 on the computer, and we spent $50 on the software, and we were cutting 5.5K raw footage without any compression or transcoding at all. Um, and so it's the line item that's usually, even on a low budget film, sometimes upwards of $30,000, $40,000, even on a million dollar film, should, can be under $2,000. And, um, and that's something that I really advocate for a lot because I think there's a lot of demystification that needs to happen about how editing works. You know, in terms of what you can do with an off the shelf, just okay computer. You know, you can do the equivalent of what, I mean, I was editing 18 terabytes of footage. You know, I don't know why I would need a fancier system than an iMac to do that. <laughs> so, but that said, I'm going to throw this back to Luca, um, because from a producer and, and how involved you are in post-production specifically, um, you know, 10,000 Saints we know is shot on film, but you work on a lot of stuff with digital as well. So what's kind of your thoughts on the workflow process and how different it is and how shooting on film versus digital, how that's kind of impacted your post-process? Um, sorry, I just had to think for a second about that. So um, we shot 10,000 States on film. It was not um, an efficient or an economic decision at all. It was totally aesthetic. That was the point of it. And it was an enormous struggle to budget properly. And actually, we would have only been able to do it with the cooperation of an extremely amenable vendor. Um, they really gave us like an unbelievable deal. Um, and we never would have been able to do it otherwise, so I have to thank Technicolor for that because they really did us a giant favor. Um, I guess the thing that seems to be the place that I feel that like digital film um, struggle coming from most is from the DP director world. And there are so many like solutions to that problem that I've seen over the years. Um, you know, the cheaper digital gets and the easier it gets, the more it becomes the standard. And now I would say in the last like year, I've really feel, felt film completely fall off. Like the film lab in New York closed like a month ago. Basically like Photochem is one of the only film labs in North America that's left. So um, the struggle that I've seen with directors who want to get like a film look in their movies, um, it can just take so many different forms. Like I have a film, you know, there's what Bob and Sherry decided to shoot, was shoot their movie on 16 millimeter, which is crazy, but we did it. Um, 
and I have a film uh, by a director who shot on Alexa, and his solution for the problem, um, and we'll see if it works, I'm really excited to see what happens, is we're gonna project it in a screening room and set up a 35 millimeter camera and shoot the screen. And what we're hoping is that by doing that, we'll be able to, um, we'll be able to pull in film grain in a more organic way and also um, get the specific curve that you really only get with 35 millimeter film. Um, I don't know if it's gonna work, but we're totally excited to like test it. That, that is insane. We have this whole other idea for how to do it, which is like even more complicated and ridiculous, but it's just like not even worth going into. But obviously there's like a million different ways to deal with the issue of grain, to deal with the issue of the film look, like, and it's really just about what you wanna see when you sit down in the room and you look at the screen. So it's good to just do a lot of research and figure out what you want your movie to look like. Well, you should, you should talk to Kyle. Yeah. Because Why, what did you I'm going to plug uh, Sonny. Sonny, um, Sonny's last name is... Uh, Behar. Yeah, Sonny Behar has developed this... Oh, is he the guy with the grain box? It, is it a, it's, not, it's like a box. Yeah, yeah, he developed yeah, this... Yeah, I guess you could call it a grain box. I guess you could call it a grain box. Yeah, yeah so we, it's called Live Grain. And it's, yeah, 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 yeah. And we use that in our film. Uh, our cinematographer had used it on Togetherness on HBO. And, um, oh my God, I'm talking about him. He just walked in the door. Uh, <laughs> and we're talking about you and Sonny. Um, and <laughs> I don't know, I, I can't give you internet right now. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was, in the, it doesn't just layer the, and they'd be able to speak more eloquently about it, but it doesn't just layer the grain superficially over it, you know, it does, it, it, it works with the highlights and lowlights and sure. adjusts with it and creates a very, you know, convincing, for me the goal isn't always to make it, make it look like film, but to capture qualities of film that you like. Yeah. You know, I think it used, I feel like the ideology used to be, the better digital look, looks more like film, the more you like it. And I think because of ways that, I think you know, Fincher really started to embrace, embrace the digital look when it came into the way that he, it was like, no, no, let's not, not make it look like digital. Digital can be its own thing and be beautiful. And, um, and so, and to me, that was, I, that was a big inspiration when I first started shooting. My first film was one of the first six or seven movies I think ever shot on the red camera. And so when I saw Zodiac, I was, even though that, that wasn't on the red, but it was like, oh, okay, he didn't shy away from the sharpness and he didn't shy away from the color palette. But like for this film I just did, it takes place in the 70s and it's, the whole movie takes place almost in a white room. And it's almost all white people wearing white clothes in a white room. And, and I didn't want it to be that like really clinical look. And so we, when we discussed it, we were like, well, our only option is, is, is to try to really work with grain in it. And so I ended up playing a really crucial part. Having said that, taking a 35 millimeter camera and shooting a projection is kind of awesome idea, it's, if it works. Insane. <laughs> I, mean, I, think it's, I think it's so simple and if it works, it's kind of amazing that no one's done it yet. Yeah. Well, there was like, there was a, um, I think there was a, what's the name of, I can't remember his name, the guy who did Spring Breakers. Oh, Harmony Corrine. Yeah, Harmony Corrine did a movie, I think, a, I think a long time ago, a movie called, called Julian Donkey Boy, and I think he actually made the movie that way. So I oh, told, we totally didn't think it up. We're totally stealing from Harmony Corrine. Completely Corrin, ripping but, it off. Yeah. That's all right. <laughs> um, well, you should talk to Rick then, because he can probably hook you up with a camera. Um, <laughs> You see, we're, we're, we're setting it up. It's like low-hanging fruit. We're, like, we're just right here. Um, Rick, how many, like in terms of film in general, because obviously digital acquisition is so ubiquitous now, how many people still shoot films? And do independent filmmakers, is that still even an option for people these days? It is. Um, 
I mean, it's less so now because, um, I mean, digital is such a, you know, there's so much momentum. Um, we have so many cameras that um, are, would be great to be used. If, uh, if you're interested, you know, come see me so after. So many. <laughs> yeah, there are a few. Um, but as far as the, your question being how many... Yeah, like, how, like what percentage? Like of, if there's 100 movies, does one shoot on film still? Does that is a, you know, the statistics, I mean, I'd have to say 10% if that. Um, so, for features. So it's still out there. And so people it is. I mean, television is almost, I mean, how many projects are shot on film for television? Almost none, you know. Yeah, Walking Dead and Breaking Bad. True Detective is nice, Walking Dead. Yeah, so Walking Dead is 16. So, I mean, we're supporting that camera, uh, that show in Atlanta. Um, but yeah, far more digital, you know. Unless you're Quentin Tarantino, in which case you buy every you do square have, inch yeah, of 70 millimeter film you can find and uh, go out to tell your ride to shoot Hateful Eight. Right, right, um, right. Um, in, terms of, in, in terms of cinematographers, when they come in at the very beginning when they're looking at cameras, are they thinking about the rest of the process? I mean, are they, are they thinking about how they're going to finish it? I mean, in, in your opinion, being that you guys are really the first conversation they have once a movie gets going? The dialogue is far more gr greater now. I mean, there's so, much, there's so many more cameras available. You know, the film stocks, you know, there were, there's far more cameras now to choose from. And there's so many workflows to choose. Whatever media you choose to shoot on, the camera, the post flow. I mean, there's, there's, um, I don't have a lot of the, um, there's so much dialogue that happens in, 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 the, in the process that I, I, I still need to be educated. It's happening so fast, you know, and it's, um, it's great to have light iron in, in the process now too, so. Well, thank you, happy to, to be there. Um, how many DPs walk in and as like a, do, would you say most walk in and say, I'm gonna shoot Alexa, Ari Raw, or like do more people these days come in sort of looking at cameras almost like film stocks where, you know, I want a certain look so I'm looking at red, or do they come in sort of with an open mind or are they just I like, think no, so. just put um, me three I mean, Alexas and call it a day? There's several DPs in the audience and I'm, I'm thinking that they, you know, in their mind, they probably, for the most part, wanna shoot film for a look but digital um, seems to be the driving force. There is, um, repeat the question again real quick, I'm so sorry. Oh no, it's mostly just like, as from a creative point of view, when a, when a director of photography comes in, is it like, just give me three Alexas and throw some lenses on it, call it a day, or is it like, let me test the- They do testing. Veracam 35 Ext and- A lot Alexa of extensive testing, you know? Yeah. Um, some gravitate more to Alexa or be it red. Uh, a lot of it's budget driven. Um, you know, a lot of DPs get pigeonholed to move in a direction that may, they may not want to because it's driven by how much they can afford or not. And quantities of cameras as well, too. So um, it's not just the cameras, it's the optics. Um, you know, it's a big part of the process. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the coolest things I think you guys are doing is rehousing all your old blasts. Yeah, and which is uh, we have so many eras of optics. I mean, from you know, Panavision's history back to the, you know, the 50s through, you know, current optics that we have. Also, we have to invest in other companies' optics to stay in business. You know, Cook and Ingenue and, you know, even in the older lenses to have in our inventory for the flavors that the DPs really want to utilize. Um, so we have to have those ready to go.
So I'm going to take this back to Todd and Luca, but, uh, you know, so going kind of with the traditional workflow, um, a lot of stuff is moving to, to the set or to production. You know, there's less post work specifically happening in a house somewhere. Um, you know, you have DITs who are on set who are now not just downloading and checking media, but they're making dailies, they're setting color with the DP, they're really a part of the process. So how have you guys both worked with that and kind of how have you seen the change and has it been really helpful? Has it been kind of a difficult transition? What's it been like the process? Well, that, that's really easy for me to uh, reflect on how it was, you know, before we used to go in and sit, you know, and watch dailies on the screen, you know, back in the day. And, you know, what a pain that was. You'd go out and you'd shoot all day and then a couple of producers would get together and, you know, you're there all night, sometimes drinking beers, watching, you know, it's just a mess, really. Um, I don't miss those days at all. <laughs> you know, now it's like you can just dump it right to the drive and, you know, the ACs are in there hacking away on it digitally and they're watching it as they're going. Um, on the David Gordon Green films that I d do, I've done a couple of, of films with him and his uh, editor, Colin, he'll, he'll be on the set, you know, and they're taking the drives back and they're editing the thing in a hotel room. Like when we did Prince Avalanche, we had like a whole edit suite set up on the first floor of the Hampton Inn. It was great. You know, we would just dump everything and they would just be in there like little wizards, you know. How was that internet away. connection in there? Um, it was actually <laughs> all right, which was surprising for uh, Bastrop, Texas. Um, but Bastrop was the name of that place. It's about 30 miles south of Austin. Um, but, you know, it, it's fantastic to have that ability now. Um, and then also with the iPad, you know, you can sit there the next day and you can you know, thumb through footage um, and see what you, you shot the previous day. It helps to uh, speed up the process too because if there's something that we didn't like and we got to reshoot it or maybe we can send out a second unit or something like that to go do some pickups, you can start to plan logistically, you know, what your upcoming weeks are going to look like too based on the footage that's been shot. So um, anyways, that's my two cents. Luca. Um, so I think that... Uh, I guess there are two movies that I feel like might be interesting to talk about just in this context. The first movie is a movie that was produced last spring in New York City called Time Out of Mind that I mostly did post-production supervising and I had a producing role on that, but more as a co-producer and not as a lead producer. And on that movie, um, uh, Oren Moverman, who had The Messenger here, I don't know, maybe six years ago, um, he decided the film is about a homeless man who's struggling to find shelter and services in New York City. And what they sort of decided for the production plan is that they were going to put Richard Gere out on the street in New York in dressed like a homeless guy and shoot him from like three blocks away. So everything was shot on incredibly long lenses. And a lot of the, the most amazing footage in the movie is Richard Gere, you know, in wardrobe, wandering through Grand Central Station as you watch people kind of like shy away from him and look at him askance. There's a woman who like gives him change like, and um, when we were testing for the movie, 
you know, I was on the sort of like budgeting side of that movie and Oren said, I really want to shoot Airy Ron. I was like, you can't shoot Airy Ron, a $5 million movie in New York City. That's like a disaster. And he was like, and we, and we talked about it a lot. Um, and the main problem was the movie had to be so sort of lean from a transportation perspective. Every day we were doing two or three company moves all over the city. So if you hand your loader a mag and say download this one terabyte mag, and then you turn off the camera truck or turn on the camera truck to like do a company move, all of a sudden you've lost like two and a half hours of work. So the way we sort of figure that out is just treating um, the footage like film. And there were several people on the movie who were terrified of this idea, but we just took the mags and took them to the lab, and the lab did all the work for us, which was sort of like the anti-near set idea. It was like, and people would say, well, are you not backing up on set? And we said, no, we're not backing up on set. And they said, well, aren't you worried about losing footage? And we were all kind of like, well, no more worried than we would be if someone like tripped and dropped the film in a puddle. Like, it's the same thing. So I think that there are ways of using the processes that we had before digital existed to um, even make further efficiencies on digital workflows. Like, the answer isn't always a new piece of software or a faster computer. Sometimes it's just like rethinking the process a little bit. I'm gonna talk about one more movie and then I'll, I won't talk anymore, but there was this movie called Gabriel that I produced that was in Tribeca last year um, and the movie was tiny. It was, um, it was about a half a million dollar movie and we did everything totally in-house. Um, we had an amazing guy named Frank Sun, who's a DP, who had two laptops with Resolve on it. He processed all the dailies on a folding table, like in the middle of set. Um, the editor did their own online, and we cleared post-production at like $15,000 or something like that. I mean, it was totally crazy. But it's a great way of, it, it, there's simple, you know, for a movie like that, I say don't worry about the format that you're shooting on in the way it looks so much. Like if you can make a little bit of a compromise in terms of the look of the film, you can get major payback in terms of efficiency and budget and even time for the director to cut and you know all those other things that are important about a movie. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's often the same conversation we have all the time is, you know, whether or not, you know, to go to for a, a specific camera format because creatively versus then what it's gonna do to like tear your budget apart. So that's always like the biggest. Yeah, and it's not just like, oh, we don't wanna spend more money because we're cheap. Like that's not actually what the game is. The game is like, we have this pot of money and we can spend it on whatever we want. So if we gamble it away on a slot machine, like we're not gonna have a very good movie, but if we can pick how to spend the money exactly the way we want to, we can make a good movie. Sure. So. Yes, and suddenly the panel veers into putting light iron out of business. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Unintentionally. No, um, you know. <laughs> no, you guys are awesome. We love, I mean, listen, we push technology really hard, but at the end of the day, um, and Kyle, I think you'd agree with me on this, one of the beautiful things about filmmaking, one of the most important things about filmmaking is, is that it's a collaborative process. So this is veering a little bit from the question before, mostly because you had already touched on the fact that you basically cut on set during lunch. So the question I had prepared just get 
thrown <laughs> totally out the window. No, it's fine. Um, would you say that that because you can work faster, um, you find that the collaboration that you have with the people around you is is easier, or you can you can take more time to like really work with the writers and the actors and that sort of thing, or does it matter? I, I wish to. I would say that we had more time, but I mean, on this film, we were shooting you know somewhat usually or sometimes upwards of thirteen pages a day, you know, with twenty five actors during those days um, and needing to pull in 12, you know, 12, 13 hours because we were union film. So you're doing, an, you know, I think our biggest day we did, I think it was like 96 set different setups in one day. And it was like, um, you know, I was talking to another filmmaker today. She goes, oh my God, we had this insane day. We did 65 setups. And I said, look, I'm not trying to gloat, but we did a 96 setup day. We were all afterwards, we're like, what just happened? You know, it was insane. But um, having said that, what I, what I do find in terms of talking about how technology enhances collaboration and stuff, it's, it's being able to, for instance, like on our film, we, of course, you want to get as much in, in body zooms as you can, and you want to get the shot exactly as you want. But we knew we were finishing on 2K because it's cost prohibitive, and no one, you know what I mean? It's not 4K finishing right now isn't, gonna, isn't really happening for your standard low budget indie. And so, so that's okay, we're shooting 5.5K, and we're going to go down to 2K. So there were just a lot of times where we didn't have, we legitimately didn't even have the 10 minutes to swap and calibrate from a, from a prime to a zoom. And so we would just say, okay, well, we're gonna, we're gonna leave this prime on, we're gonna go a little bit wider, we're gonna sort of meet in the middle and we're gonna know in post that it's gonna be okay, that we can do some zooms in. And some of the, some of the powerful moments in the film that really work are, are digital zooms, but they were planned to be. You know, I think it used to be this idea, it used to be fix it in post, right? It was, the, it was like the ideology of like, you're never supposed to say that. And now to me, it's more like, no, let's talk about what we can do in post for it. And it's not about being scared about it, it's about talking about it beforehand and finding the way to best utilize your shoot time to, to say that, to say, okay, well, you know, we never took it so far as, I remember when The Red first came out, we shot in Albuquerque, and another movie had shot there just before us. I think it never got released, and I think maybe Thomas Jane directed it, I'm not sure. I think they shot it in 3D even. Like, they were shooting like two, it was something insane. Like, I don't, I don't know if it was like a, a test reel or something, but they said that they were shooting like, they were not shooting coverage because they were like, well, we can crop in like, you know, 400%. So they're like shooting medium shots that then wide shots that then be the medium and then the close up. And I, I don't believe in that kind of ideology, but there is the moments to say, okay, well, hey, we want this moment. We want to push in. Well, we don't have time to lay down dolly tracks and we don't have time to swap the zoom lens on. So, okay, well then we're going to still get what we want and we're going to plan to do that. And we did a lot more of that on this film by the nature of the story and it taking place in this really small environment with all these actors. You know, there was a lot more selectivity of saying, okay, we're going to start with that shot, but the scene, the way we ended up cutting it together, it's a little bit more about that guy. So we're going to slowly move this long take in onto his face. And, and um, if you have all the time in the world, you calculate that stuff on set. But when you don't, you use that. So I think it's more about enhancing the collaboration and working and DPs now understanding what can be done better, I mean, done more with in post. I mean, it's just all, I mean, the DI process isn't even that old. You know, and so we're talking about the ways it can start to be used. And it's, it's really not that old for indies. And so for me, that's what's exciting. Each film I've learned to embrace the post-production more and more in terms of what you can do with the image and how many things you can change, even like even just lighting and really understanding what what the raw negative data is, you know, like what is really too dark on set and what really isn't too dark. And um, you know, we didn't have really many exteriors on this film or windows to exteriors, but on my last film, almost every interior was look with a window looking out. And my least favorite thing for what I don't even think when I see it in movies, I don't mind it, but in my films, I hate white blown out windows. It's my least favorite thing in the world. So we shot most of that movie, I would say maybe 50, 60% of an HDRX 
on the red. And to me, that was like a massive time and budget saver because we didn't have to light the interiors that much because we were shooting two exposures for the outside and the inside. And um, and that was so we didn't spend as much time lighting. And the, it looked it looked like no one believes we made that movie f on the budget we did. And I think a large part of that is because it, it was given scope, because you're looking out these windows and you're seeing this beautiful land that was back there that normally you wouldn't be able to see because you'd have to light the, 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 you'd light the hell out of the inside of the, of the room to, in order to be able to still expose for the outside. So I think it's those kind of tools. I get the most excited when the tools streamline your production and tell your story better. You know, and, 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 um, and I think that that's where I try to always advocate for other directors to understand the technology as much because it saves you money and it saves you time and it gives you more options and it lets you be more creative and... Uh, I don't know, I'm excited about hopefully even the next one embracing that more and more. Or, you know, shooting it on an iPhone as a movie that just premiered here yesterday did that looked that apparently looked beautiful. We shot on a 5S. I was gonna say. Sean, yeah. Sean Baker's new movie. He shot it on an iPhone 5S, yeah. Um, 30 frames a second, in case anybody's wondering. Do you have to do a frame conversion? <laughs> small, small technical Did they do note. a frame conversion? Do you know? Yeah, you have to. It shoots 29 and 7. Just yeah. But, you know, yeah. I know. It's, it's, it's just interesting. It's interesting. It is, and I mean that. That's well, hey, they need some features for the seven, so they're gonna, you know, they'll build the <laughs> yeah, 24 yeah, exactly. FPS into that. Four, 4K, 23. <laughs> um, you, you actually, you nailed, you nailed basically, I think, what our at Light Iron sort of overarching sort of philosophy is, and that's like, listen, all this technology is great and awesome, but quite honestly, it doesn't matter if it doesn't help you tell the story. So really. You know, what we're focused on is everything that we make, everything that we do is it's always to empower filmmakers to tell stories better and to tell more stories and to get them out there and to have them look better. Um, Todd, Todd, talk to me for a second in terms of, um, you know, in, in, in terms of storytelling, um, do you feel like because people are able to tell more stories and are more enabled to do it, because it used to be a very high barrier to entry. You used to have to go to Rick and get a Panavision Platinum thing, and that cost a hundred and whatever. And you know, it was a very high barrier to entry. But now you can shoot a movie on an iPhone. So just in terms of creatively, do you feel like that's going to lead us to better movies or just more shitty movies, for lack of a better term? I think that content um, is where it's at. So the more content that's coming in, the more stories you're gonna um, experience and I think it's just gonna basically enhance the filmmaking experience you know I, I always think of things as progressing anyways and and I like to stay current and if you think about it right now I mean you've got YouTube you've got all these digital mediums um, Vimeo I, I mean basically you can shoot a movie on an iPhone I mean heck my 10 year old daughter this is freaking crazy. She shoots, I got her an iPhone, she has editing software, and she busts me out little bits. She did Frozen with her friends and lined up the whole Frozen bit frame by frame. And I was like, oh my God, you're a filmmaker. This is unbelievable, 10 years old. So if a 10 year old can tell a story, imagine somebody who's got the poetic vision and, and that's really talented, they're gonna be able to execute whatever their mind beholds. You know, so that's very exciting to me. Um, you know, when it, when it comes down to it, I, I'm all for the digital medium. I, I was very uh, old fashioned in many years ago and I, I was one of the last people to embrace the transition. I just wanted to hang on to my film, you know. And once I opened my mind and, you know, jumped into the digital world, not only did my career propel 
um, but just my whole ability to tell stories just shot forward and and you know the world's world's your oyster now you know you can take GoPros and throw them down on the ground and run over them for a couple hundred bucks you know with cars and you know do all this stuff that you used to not be able to do you know and I remember those days when it was a hundred thousand dollars camera rental for you know a, a Panavision and then and you know you had to cut film and stuff like that. that's crazy to even think about that now um, so yeah I think I think that all this stuff is great and I think you're gonna have a lot of budding filmmakers that's why I love Sundance so much I mean I like to just you know, go into panels and, and into meetings and go up to the filmmaker's lodge. You never know who you're going to meet. You know, everybody's telling a story nowadays. And, and, and now, um, you know, we all have the ability to tell our stories with the digital realm. So, yeah, I think it's great. Um, so on that note, um, and I guess this is kind of open to anyone here, um, you know, do you feel like the, the education portion then of kind of especially directors or not as much maybe the DPs, but kind of having to teach people new processes because there's a new camera constantly every six months and it's like, okay, we gotta talk about what we can utilize from this camera or shooting ProRes or 4K or 5K. So do you feel like there's a lot of education that's kind of having to be pushed in as part of like the project each time or do I, you kind of take I, it as it goes? I don't feel that way. I, I think, you know, a, a lot of times just staying current um, and, and being open, the education process comes kind of organically as you encounter new people and, and new directors and, and new DPs because that's where I learn the new technology and the new camera systems is from, from those guys, right? But just the same um, across the board, you know, if, if you're shooting an independent film and it's going to be between, you know, one, one and a half million and eight, ten million dollars, really, in, in that whole realm, I mean, there's two main systems that are kind of the standard. You've got the Red Epic and you've got the Alexa, um, uh, you know, but, but I love the fact that, that DPs and directors um, have their own preference on cameras sometimes and they li like to bring that to the table like the new Sony cameras I'm starting to learn about so I think the education kind of happens in real time and you're talking to another filmmaker and they're like oh man you know we've got this new Sony camera you should check this out and then I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna look it up online and talk to some other people and, and see how to incorporate it, that into the process so anyways that's my thought how, how does that fall on your plate then Rick um, as far as Educating yeah, people. Yeah, as far as educating. You, you know, know, it's, it's funny. I was just thinking about that. I mean, um, we, we, we provide so many different cameras now, and there's no real training, per se. Um, so it's really upon the DP and, uh, you know, the dialogue that they have with, there's a DIT involved. There's so many technical things more now that we provide the camera, and you can test at our facilities, but there's no real training, per se. So you usually go through the Sony class or... You know, if Red offers a, some kind of training program, uh, Alexa's as well, too. So we have all those cameras for digital. Um, and, but we allow, you know, the cinematographers to test their, you know, um, each camera with lenses and things like that in our, in our facility. So it's really kind of on them. But we're, you know, we have incredible technicians that are, the, that are there to support. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's a tricky one, you know. It's never changing. Well, you just you just have to go on uh, on Shane Hurlbut's blog and like read about <laughs> how to how to do everything. Oh, where'd he go? He went to the bathroom. I even gave him a, a shout. Um, 
And the whole education thing is one thing that comes up with us a lot because we'll get the questions quite often, like, you know, here's what we're doing, how, how do we accomplish what we're after? Um, and so a big part of what we do is, is us keeping current on things so that we can help, you know, Todd, if you call me up and say, have you ever heard of this thing? I can say no, but somebody in Light Iron has. Um, you know, and so that, that education part is a, is, a huge, is a huge part of it. Um, I guess, you know, we're sort, of, we're sort of getting to the end of this thing, and thank you everyone again for, for being here with us. Um, I guess the, the last kind of thing is, is, I'll leave it with Kyle, um, and of course it's Sundance, and so everybody's a filmmaker, an aspiring filmmaker somehow involved. Um, do you have any advice on, because you're, you're so technical, you do do so many things, in terms of utilizing technology to help them tell their stories and to help them create better films? I just think, I don't, I don't feel like it's, I understand, I mean, in some ways I wish I could be that blissful filmmaker, you know, those filmmakers, that they're so talented, you know, the greatest story was Anthony Minghella was shooting his first film, like, Truly Madly Deeply, you know, with Alan Rickman, and they were shooting the scene, and the DP goes, okay, so are you happy? Did you get all the coverage you wanted? He was like, what's coverage? You know, and it's one of those things, he, he's one of the great, he was like one of the great filmmakers, so it's one of those things that, you know, I, I, I do think there is some, some bliss in that kind of ignorance, but for me, I like the technology. I always have, and I like knowing it and knowing what I could do with it. Um, like this film had, you know, 160, 140 effect shots. My last film only had three or four. And so I think it's, it's about knowing the technology, knowing how it can help you, because in a lot of ways, what I find now is that the technology is letting us tell stories with scope. You know, you look at what the kind of movies that you would see at Sundance that you see now, we have less money for independent film now, right? You know, the, 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 the five million indie is dead. So it's, um, or you know, the 10 million indie, what it used to be, you know? And, um, and so it's okay, well, you know, we're still gonna keep on making films and we're not gonna stop and so how do we still get what we want? And a large part of it, of course, is sacrifices from everybody. You know, people don't make as much and it takes harder work now and all those things. But the other side of it too is the technology let, you know, it's like I edited my movie on the same system Gone Girl was edited on. I colored my, you know, we colored with the same colorist from Gone Girl. We shot it on the same camera, you know. So it takes away the excuse of like, well, if only I'd had that. You know, if only I had that, then my movie would have been as good as that. And it's actually kind of scary because it, you, you, it, you're, it strips away all the things that prevent you from telling the story you want to tell it the way you want to tell it, and you have to actually be, you actually have to be good, and that's the scariest thing. Yeah, like, you gotta you do it now, You right? can't kind of be like, hide. well, you can't really say, like, I think, you know, you think of, you know, obviously one of the, being here at Sundance, you think of, like, El Mariachi and how big of a deal it was. People were like, this movie's great, and he's like, I made it for $7,000, and everyone was like, and he's like, I only got those $7,000 because I, like, gave my skin to science, you know, he was like, <laughs> but nowadays, if someone's like, oh, I made that movie for $7,000, they'd be like, okay, cool. Like, they were, no one, it's, no one asks really what your budget is anymore, because everything is impressive now. And, um, but it's great, I think it turns the focus back to the filmmaking and, and further away from what can you do with such little money, it's more now, okay, no, just what are you going to do? Um, and, and that's, I think, the exciting thing. So I think the more technical knowledge you have, and there's so many great message boards and so many great, you know, I've never learned from the books, you know, the printed books. I've never learned from like, you know, Dummy's Guide to, you know, Premiere Pro or, or to the Red Camera, you know, you just go and you read the message boards. Cause I, everyone- I highly recommend it. It's yeah. <laughs> but I just mean the message boards are other people like you wanting to also understand it. And, um, and the more you know of that, it's not about doing someone else's job, it's about being able to know how they're doing their job so you can help support them the most you can as the filmmaker or producer. Um, and I think that's exciting. So I'm excited to see people utilize it more and more. I mean, I think it's interesting that a movie was just shot on an iPhone. 
I think I even said it in a panel, like before realizing Sean had shot his movie in an iPhone, I said, we're only a couple years away from like a beautiful movie premiering off the iPhone, and I was, we were only a couple hours away. I had no idea, you know? <laughs> That's how fast technology moves. <laughs> he must have been there and said, let me go make a movie. And Hang on. <laughs> we got two hours before the next one. Um, great. Well, um, gentlemen, thank you. Luca, you have any last thoughts? He or? looks like he did. I kind of like, yeah. the only thing I wanted to say, I was listening to what you were saying and I think it's very interesting. I think the, the one person who I haven't heard mentioned like a tremendous amount in this discussion and I think it's an omission on our parts is the editor. Um, and I don't think that there's a more, you know, I'm gonna say something that I'm, is gonna make people in this room like not like me at all. But I think it's really important to have a good DP and I think it's really important to have a fancy camera and to make every shot look good and all that stuff. But like, if your editor isn't on board early and is not telling you what footage you need to make your movie, your movie's gonna be bad. Like, that's actually the thing that makes your story work. So less than like making sure you have Airy Raw or making sure you have the perfect colorist. Like, make sure that the editor is guiding you through the process of telling you what images you need on screen to tell your story, because without that, you're just gonna have something that's not gonna work. And I think that's more important than, like, technology or training or, like, whatever. Like, it just doesn't matter as much. So, listen to your editors. <laughs> it's important. Yes, and from a company founded by a bunch of editors, uh, yeah, we would, we would agree with you. Um, all right, well, you know, we're getting close to the end here, so I, we will open it up to questions from the audience. Yeah, back there in the back, you can just yell it out, I think. I'll repeat it. For me, I think that, you know, I, I, it was funny, I was watching a film once, um, and I, I, I won't say the film, but there was a scene where someone tries to commit suicide and they're rushing him to the hospital, and the camera pans down and you saw like some spots of blood coming from a wrist, you know, like the set deck just like laid some blood down, and I was kind of like, yeah, if he's passed out and they're rushing him to the hospital, like he's, mo he's bled out. It and, and, the and, beaver, was it? No, it was not the beaver. Um, <laughs> thanks for spoiling the movie, though. <laughs> and it was, uh, and, and I remember just being like, you guys just look into, so enough filmmakers don't consider effects work, I think, and not necessarily just fixes, but even ahead of time, you know, and just being like, hey, you know, so I mean, I can't speak from it on an animation level, but I, the one thing I wish I had a stronger skill with was 
base, some basic level effects work. Like I wish I had a, not to necessarily do it myself, but to be able to do some like, I would love to be able to do some early, like we had some, some compositing in, in my film that's here. And you know, the assistant editor, she just did some quick like throw-ins just so we could like play it back. But I wish I had a stronger, that's something like I wish I knew more of was effects work. But I think that actually, I think the great, really good effects artists are actually good like actual artists, like hand artists. Uh -huh. And I don't have that at all. And so, I mean, I can't even draw, you know, I can't even sign my name. And so it's one of those things where, I mean, I'm really not kidding. I actually can't sign my name. Um, and so I think it's one of those things where I would love to have a better, because I could go in and be like, okay, hey, this is what it's going to look like. And now, like, if you use, like, Adobe Workflow, flow, everything kind of works in tandem with itself. So you can be, like, doing composites and dropping it in and then going back to it and dropping it back in again. And so I think that there is a next stage of people who are going to be able to do a lot of that stuff themselves they're gonna pull off some really interesting, beautiful stuff that they, we wouldn't have seen in this spectrum of independent filmmaking because they wouldn't have had, they wouldn't have had access to it. Great. What else? Hit us with your best shot. It's like a giant jigsaw puzzle. So like when I'm, I totally know that feeling because I've obviously been there many times myself where I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. Like this is $30,000 and this is $35,000 and you only want to spend $30,000. But like if we spend five grand more, it's going to be like a bajillion times better. Like I've been in that argument and I know how that feels. I think that like ideally you walk into the relationship with the, when you're doing the post supervisor job, you're walking into a relationship and this isn't obviously always the case, but like we strive for a better world. So like let's hope that we're entering into a relationship of trust with the director and the producer and the department heads on the movie and that we all have each other's best interests at heart. And I don't think that's always the case, but I think it's important to like strive for it to be the case. So like give people the benefit of the doubt in those situations to start off with because ideally all of your collaborators are people who are intelligent and are like really just trying to, I mean, come on. I was, like, I was waiting. This is where my like manic joker laughs. And you know, and you get, and you try to get to this place where like it's a team and we're all gonna step forward at the same time. Um, I do think that there's like all sorts of occasions where people, I mean, you know, there's a director I know very well who always yells at producers on set for being penny wise and pound foolish. And in my head I think, yeah, okay, it's probably penny wise and pound foolish, but if I had a pound, I would totally do it, but I only have a penny, so we're gonna do the penny thing. And I think that that's like a, just an endless tension between the re, in the relationship between producers, directors, post you know, anyone on a set. Did that answer your question at all? Well, that's, okay. that, that's why you have both though, right? You just keep fighting to make the film better. Well, ideally you keep discussing to make the film better. Like ideally no one's like throwing chairs or like, although it, you ideally. know. 
Yeah. I'll say, use that word a lot. I think it depends on the specificity of what it is. You know, I mean, it's always about picking your, I mean, the entirety of, for me, at least, picking, of independent filmmaking has been picking battles and choosing compromises. And I find that yeah. that's, I feel like 90%, 95% of what I do is figuring out which compromises to make and which ones not to, and the other 5% is directing a movie. I mean, it's, it sound, that sounds a little facetious, but it, it kind of is true because you have to say, okay, well, no, 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 and you, and you have to be, that's, it depends on, so much comes into that in terms of how, how the producers are using their money or, or not using their money. Um, you know, sometimes you get line producers who get bonuses if they come in under budget. That's an odd encouragement, I think, sometimes to line producers, you know what I mean? Being like, hey, be cheap, and then, you know, when the line producer is supposed to be using the money in the most effective way. So it just is, oh, it just depends on the circumstance so much. But if it's something you really, really believe in, you gotta, you gotta be prepared to throw yourself in the fire for it and just say, no, 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 we need this, this is why, and give the education and hopefully do your best to win that battle. But there's always gonna be some battles you don't win, unless you have Final Cut, and then I would like to be you. <laughs> All right, in the back. You, you can't ever know too many people, right? So there yeah. you go. Um, yeah. So kind of going back to the first question, like as a writer or a, a producer who's like developing a, a story as a writer, like how do you not self-censor and be like, well, I can't do that because it's that don't look like this. I self-censor all the time. What? I, I always self-censor. I mean, I know some people are always like, I mean, the idealistic world is you write, you write the movie and, and everyone else, and everyone else to your rights, please, please, I'll pass on, I don't, I don't want to be a MyCog, but like I, you know, in a lot of ways, the idealism they always say is, I don't want to be a MyCog, yes. but I'm going to keep on talking. Um, the idealism that people always say is like, oh, you know, write, just, just write what you want to write and don't worry about the budget and worry about the budget later, but the truth is, is then you break your own heart, you know, um, and for me, it's saying, I think you need to know who what you're writing for. Are you writing for your, you know, the first thing I always say when someone sends me a script, not for me to direct, but just like for their advice, and I'm always like, okay, what did you write this for? Did you write this to sell? Did you write this as a sample? Did you write this to direct? Yeah. If you did write it to direct, do, how do you want to make this? Is this your first film? Do you have money yet? What's the budget range you think you might be able to get of people you know with funds and that kind of stuff? And for me, it's being able to say, you know, to go, bring it back to El Mariachi, I don't know why I keep on referring, but he knew he had, he knew he had a uh, very high quality severed head prop from a friend. He knew he had access to a bus and he knew he had access to a pool, just the pool in the back of a mansion. And he wrote the movie for that. He wrote, there's a scene, there's a dream sequence where the severed head rolls. The main villain floats in the pool for most of his scenes, and there's one stunt where the guy jumps from a building onto a moving bus. And that, and he wrote, and but it just depends what the aim is, I think. And 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 it's totally, I think the the, the positive response to that though is to say, if you if your 